there is a point, I think, where shame probably allows you to survive because you are so full of shame and regret that it just occurs to you, you might there might be a way out of this and you can't go on being like this. And I remember going with Emma in the car, she was about six or seven, on a Sunday morning and buying a bottle of vodka and drinking it in the car and her, she was weeping in the car. And I thought, I can't do this anymore. Welcome to the Hurt to Healing podcast with me, Pandora Morris. I've been fighting an uphill battle with my mental health for many years, and it's only now that I've started to see some glimmers of light. As part of my own recovery, I've made it my mission to support as many of you as possible on your own healing journey by sharing conversations that are more honest and more raw than ever before. I'll be speaking to some wonderful people from all walks of life who will open up about their own invisible struggles in the hope that it will provide a bit of solace and comfort for some of you. The Hurt to Healing podcast is proud to partner with Shout, the UK's first free, confidential, 24-7 tech support service. So if you're struggling to cope and need mental health support, please text SHOUT, S-H-O-U-T, to 85258. I'm honoured to be joined by a very established television presenter and journalist known for her assertive views and her frosty presenting style on one of my all-time favourite game shows, The Weakest Link, Anne Robinson. In the 1960s, she was the first young female trainee at the Daily Mail newspaper She worked at the Sunday Times and the Daily Mirror and then went on to host programs from Watchdog to Channel 4's Countdown. However, in her mid-30s, Anne began to drum up a reputation for being a heavy drinker, which began to overshadow her work, and after a fierce custody battle with her ex-husband, she lost joint custody of her daughter, then aged just two. This was the turning point that led to her seeking help. In today's interview, Anne opens up about her battle with addiction, and what got her onto the road to recovery. Okay, we're going to dive straight in, and I'm going to ask about when you started to rely on alcohol in an unhealthy way. Probably not till my mid-twenties, actually. I just didn't bother with alcohol. But once I started drinking, I realised that I could forget all my worries if if I drank. And I also probably realised quite quickly that I turned into somebody else. So I don't think there was a blotting paper system whereby I took more and more alcohol and then became alcoholic. I think I was instantly, magnificently drunken. And can you pinpoint in your career, was that at a particular point? Well, quite often with alcohol and other drugs, I think that you go on being rather splendid and you survive it because you've got natural talent and you combine it, and it's very good. So there was certainly a period where, if I was slightly worried about it, not too much, because I thought my career is going so well, I don't have to worry. But then there's a point where it stops being good. And was there a semblance of wanting to keep up with the guys? Absolutely not. I was rather better than most of the guys. I grew up in a household where my mother was a breadwinner and a really successful, funny, beautiful, demanding runner of a huge business and therefore you know monkey see monkey does it it never occurred to me that I wasn't as good but probably better than they were 
it was a very unusual upbringing, and, and that made it brilliant for going into journalism and newspapers. I want to ask you about your mum, because you've spoken about her having a reliance on alcohol. Yeah. So talk to us about that. I mean, I went off to boarding school, and my entire life there was governed by whether I thought she was happy or unhappy, and then she would ring very drunk. And there was one public telephone in in the corridor. The school was the former home of the Empress Eugenie, and it was very grand. And the nun would come, it was Catholic boarding school, the nun would come and say, your mother's on the phone, and then you'd think, oh, God, she will already be pissed and have said something inappropriate. And then you'd go down and she would be crying, and you'd think, well, I can't, what can I do? I'm 13, I'm at school, and it's all my fault. That was my memory of, of thinking it was my fault and how I was completely determined I would never do that to my children. So what changed? Well, I, I'm not ducking the problem of becoming an alcoholic, but I'm not convinced I had much choice in it. I rather think your card was marked. I don't think that's an excuse for going on drinking, but I do believe, as much as I understand it, that you're somebody who can drink or you're somebody who can't drink. And funnily enough, once you stand upright again and you're not dying, your concern is not how this happened to you, but to make sure you go on living. So I'm not terribly bothered about the chemistry of it, but my belief is that you either are or you aren't. Before you started drinking, what do you think you did to alleviate that anxiety? Because clearly you did have some kind of buried trauma. Well, from... if you say so, and you obviously know more about the subject than I do, but I don't know if I had any buried trauma. I don't know if it's the Oedipus complex, which is the Freudian idea that your parents don't transfer well enough to you that you take over your own life from being looked after by them. I have no idea if it's the Irish genes. I come from peasants in Southern Ireland and there wasn't any Prozac, so presumably they all got pissed all the time. Or whether you are an impatient personality, it is a combination of features of you that make you want to do that. I don't know. When you started drinking in, in your 20s, how quickly did it escalate and become excessive? I would give it five years. I remember I was in a culture where nobody noticed how much you were drinking. Possibly they noticed a lot more if you were a woman, but there were mostly men and they drank. I mean, most men, by the time I gave up drinking, my husbands would have spilt more than I ever drank. I don't think it's about quantity. You know, I was very slight. So I probably didn't need much and increasingly less to become very drunk. But when it started to get bad, you've spoken about turning up to interviews drunk and you did that very exposing article about Princess Diana having an eating disorder. I did, yeah. And was that in the height of your addiction? No, no. Trust me, I was well sober by then. I was the first woman regularly editing a national newspaper and I had come in on a Sunday and she'd been at the Albert Hall at the service of remembrance the night before and she was stick thin. And I called in the royal reporter and said, something's wrong here. And he made some calls and I trusted him implicitly when he came back and he says, you're right, she's got a real eating problem. And we splashed on it the next day. And that's how that happened. But 
there isn't a possibility that I could have done that thinking and taken that risk drunk. I mean, I just wouldn't have been in the position to do that. Yeah, so how did the demise happen? You know, it's a bit like Hemingway said, going broke, you know, slowly and then very, very, very quickly. I was married. I was high-flying Sunday times. I was covering Northern Ireland, which no other women did. Uh, It's ridiculous, but I was the only female in the Sunday Times newsroom. Not that it mattered to me. I didn't need any other females there, did I? I had Emma. The marriage was going wrong. Of course it was. And I suppose within five years, I was really incapable of doing anything except drinking or recovering from drinking. Shakes were terrible. And it was at a time when all the resources you have now didn't exist. Mm. It wasn't obvious to go to a 12-step program. Someone would think you were talking about dancing classes. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, you have a way with words. When you got to the age of, I think you were in your early 30s, weren't you? 32, was it? And you basically lost custody of Emma. And you were six and a half stone. And you said you had six weeks to live and it was life or death. Yes, there is a point, I think, where shame probably allows you to survive because you are so full of shame and regret that it just occurs to you, you there might be a way out of this and you can't go on being like this. And I remember going with Emma in the car, she was about six or seven, on a Sunday morning and buying a bottle of vodka and drinking it in the car and she was weeping in the car and I thought I can't do this anymore I couldn't see a gap in the fence anywhere I think that's one of the interesting things about giving up a drug or behaviour that it's quite difficult to see the future because you've pretty well ruined everything and so you're at your worst and your hardest and your most vulnerable because you're having to do this without much promise, actually. And you're not, for the first time in my case, doing something to relieve the pain of it. You know, nothing is softening the blow. In fact, it's ten times worse because you're sober. So did someone intervene or was it, did you take yourself voluntarily? It was my choice. I went home to my parents and I took myself to an AA meeting in Southport. I went to that meeting. I thought they were very irritating because they're all rather jolly. And I remember not being able to take a cup of tea because my shakes were too bad. I mean, my shakes were horrific. But for the first time, I thought, well, actually, I'm not the only one in the wide world to whom this has happened. And I remember there was a woman there, and she gave me her phone number. When I got outside, because I'd driven there, She had a Rolls Royce, and I thought, fuck, my mother sent her to arrange this. So that's really been the way I've learned to live without alcohol. I had, I mean, I've fast-forwarded quite quickly, but I'd tried all the expensive methods, and I never did rehab. I did a nursing home, and I did various psychiatrists. But this, up to now, has worked for me. And have you had any relapses from that moment? No, but I think I've had... What's interesting is I've been through quite dramatic periods of my life since then. You know, I've lost both my parents. I've been divorced twice. Because if you do the same thing, you get the same result. I have 
gone to America and done a show with a character I created to the whole of America. I've sold that character. It's, it's been sold to 56 countries. So all sorts of things have happened, some good, some bad, some difficult. I've got two grandchildren. I've learned to live on my own. And I think that's quite difficult if you're not naturally someone who likes their own company all the time. So there's been a lot of highs and lows, but up till now, I've managed to do it without self-destructing. Which is incredible. And I look at you as someone who's incredibly inspirational. And you look, I mean, if I look like you, I'm, I'm going to be very, very happy. But you take your health pretty seriously now, don't you? Well, I, you know, I run, I do Pilates. I don't eat any crap. I don't smoke, I don't drink. So I hope the wind's in the right direction, really. Hurt to Healing has partnered with Brown Advisory to bring you this podcast. Brown Advisory, a global investment management firm, is passionate about raising awareness of mental health challenges in order to help people thrive in an ever-changing world. A big thank you to Brown Advisory for supporting my mission. In terms of the emotional work that you did post putting the drink down, yeah, what was that like and was that painful? Well, I don't think I ever got up and thought I've got emotional work to do today. I tried as much as possible to face whatever has to be faced. And I think fear, I mean, it all comes down to fear, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, that's the huge thing. And so I trust my instincts. I say to myself, what are you frightened of? What's the worst that can happen? I think you learn also within whatever journey I've done to try and do the right thing, not because you're brilliantly nice, but because doing the wrong thing just somehow feels too uncomfortable. So you stop playing games. You know, you don't make those phone calls where you say, well, you say this to them and then they'll say this and then you can say that. I won't bother with any of that. Yeah, I mean, it's letting go and being okay with that uncertainty and not being able to plan and foresee everything. Yeah, and it, but as your life stands up straight a bit more, then you have more confidence to do that. And I have to say, my mother, I obviously inherited her alcoholism, but I did inherit a certain amount of her fearlessness and her absolute refusal to obey the rules. And if you grow up in a household where, you know, the female voice is constantly saying, who says we've got to do that? I can't see any sense in that. Then it's quite a good start. And also, there was never a day in my early life that my mother didn't say to me, because she had a totally unrealistic idea of the abilities of her children. So she would say to me every morning, there's nothing in the world you can't do because you're one of the cleverest people in the world and one of the funniest people in the world, and you write better than anyone else, and you're brilliant at performing. All of it was crap, but actually it's quite good to have that said to you every day. It's curious that she instilled that sense of anxiety, though, in you as a young girl when she used to ring you in tears, and yet... Yeah, well, she was... And I do think that it's not unusual to have a personality that is made up of fearfulness and fearlessness. Mm. And that the sort of qualities that allow you to become incredibly successful are not always the ones that do you service because 
I grew up in a house where my brother and I, until we were about 13, thought our names were hurry up because we just had to be quick. We had to be on time. And of course, you know, whatever else happens in a studio, I'm always on time. I won't have any noise in a studio. I'm always totally prepared. So if I'm a bit demanding, that bit makes up for it. Is that brilliant in terms of relaxation? Probably not. Probably not, but it's very professional. Yeah, yeah. So it, it serves you well, but it's a mistake to think it's doing your head that much good. I think it's very interesting, that juxtaposition between fearfulness and fearlessness. I mean, that's a very, very interesting point, and I've never thought about it that way because I'm crippled by fear at some points, and often I am completely incapacitated and paralyzed by it, and yet I'm completely fearless on another level. So I think it's a very, very valid thing, and I think maybe it's something that we as addictive personalities, perfectionists, whatever you want to call us, share. It's interesting that you say we as addictive personalities because I don't go around thinking of myself as an addictive personality or somebody who is defined by that. Mm. I think that I most like the idea that I'm very direct and straightforward. Mm. I've long since lost any label of being addictive. I think it's a good idea if you do. There are better things. I mean, you're... You're very clever. You're incredibly good at doing this. Well, that means a lot coming from you, who I know is is quite a critic. But it is interesting. Once you've been an addict, are you always an addict? No, but you've got that propensity and that ability to completely hyper-focus on something. I think that's the point, really, that I'm making, is it's not something that needs to define you forever going forward. But there is something in an addictive person that is able, your brain is able to fixate on things, which another person... I um, I buy far too many clothes. I have to have, you know, I have to have the clothes. I have to have this experience. I'm a real have to have. That's part of the addiction, I think, if you want to call it that. But I, it's terrible. You know, I have far too many clothes. I did read you saying that the BBC budget used to allow for quite a generous clothes allowance. I mean, you must have some incredible dresses in your wardrobe. Yeah, but even if it hasn't, I would have spent all my own money. I mean, the only the my only defence is that I've made enough money to do that. I grew up in a house also where money was incredibly important. You know, doing a deal, making money... And therefore, I despair every day of my life how hopeless you girls are about going in and getting the sort of money you deserve for a job and how to negotiate. You're all, you're all hopeless at it because you all think it's like going to the loo in public. <laughs> Absolutely right. Yeah, we need to get a little better at demanding what we're worth. What advice would you have now for someone who was, if someone came to you with a child who was in the midst of drinking way too much and relying on it, what would you say to them? Well, you can't give anyone too much love and support. You can guide them, but you can't control them. I mean, you know this as well as I do. They always say of any of these addictions, uh, you didn't cause it, you can't cure it, and you can't control it. You only have to not discount miracles. I think there's a lot of help out there now that there wasn't in my time. It doesn't matter, but it's not impossible to deal with these things, although it appears to me as if there's so much more of it around than there ever was. Mm. But you can't, I mean, love, nothing. 
faith in someone, somebody who you know you can always rely on, that's what's most important. Yeah, and and you sort of refer to the fact that you're alone now. Yeah. Would you say that you're now better in your own company than you say were in your 20s? Yes, because I had to, after I left my second husband, and remember I was hugely successful by then, she says modestly. What I'm saying is the amount... I could afford to leave. I could afford to look after the husband I was departing from. So everyone had a roof over their head. I could afford to have staff and the house that I wanted. But even so, I mean, I do remember going to Nice Airport and thinking, who's there to go and get the hire car? You know, who's going to get my suitcases? Knowingly at Nice Airport, the hire car place is not in the same terminal as you arrive from London. And so there are lots of firsts in living on your own or going to parties on your own, despite the fact that if your face is reasonably well-known, it's not difficult to go to a party. So I think you do you do have to go on learning. You do. Life is just a series of yeah. learning curves, really, isn't yeah. it? And I think we're so used to seeing life as this compartmentalised into by this age you should be doing this, by this age you should be doing that. Everyone's got huge disabilities that you can't see. You know, you might think somebody else has got a mother that's made it all easy for them, but there'll be something else you don't know about that's made it very difficult. I mean, I've only got one daughter, and she says, if there were two, I'd be the one you didn't like. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) That is great. How have you found being a mum? Have you loved it? I have. I mean, I I had a disgraceful start, Mm. you know, and we... One of the things about the court case was it wouldn't happen now, but you'd be able to go back and have a look at that decision again. And that didn't happen. And also the judgment, ridiculous, was that I was the more ambitious of the two, and that's why he got custody, despite the fact they were all drinking far too much. But I wasn't in any state to look after her. But So I suppose we had to renegotiate a proper relationship from a about the time of 10 or 11. And I think we're very close. We sometimes argue she's incredibly funny, Emma. She really is very witty and she's a fantastic mother. I mean, she irritatingly dots the I's and crosses the T's. She wouldn't let her career go in front of her being a mother. She actually does work that she can fit in between the school gate times, you know, although the second one's just about to go to boarding school. Yes, being a mother and being a grandmother has been fabulous, yeah. Did you have to do a lot of work with Emma to repair the well, damage? Well, I didn't think or... consciously. We never went to therapy or anything, but I think we we just spent enough time to get to know each other, to respect each other, and to be proud of each other, actually. I mean, I am very proud of her. And on a good day, she'll be proud of me, I think. You can just tell in the way that you speak about her that you've got, there's just a lot of love there. Yeah, but, you know, it comes from quite a sort of ropey start. Then in some ways that almost makes you appreciate it even more. Well, I think it does. And what we've never, uh, which is inexplicable to me, and I know it exists, is mothers who are jealous of their children. I mean, that doesn't seem humanly possible to me. What you want is a mother who keeps telling you you're brilliant. Mm. Why wouldn't you want that? That's the most useful thing she can do. Yeah. So post-countdown, what's next for you? 
Well, I don't know. I've got a few things. I'm meant to be writing, actually, and I should be writing. I never stopped loving being a writing journalist. And really, the television is incredibly easy. It really is. And I've been very lucky. But at heart, I think I'm a writer and I should be doing that. Uh, I don't mind doing a bit of television now and then. But it's the sort of the roar of the grease paint, the smell of the crowd doesn't excite me as much as it used to. Having said that, there is not a single drawback to being famous. Nothing. Nothing. People ask you to do things you've no idea how to do, and they pay you far too much money for doing. Everybody's nice to you, and you earn a lot of money. When would you say you reached fame? Well, I remember Emma went to NYU, so she was in New York. She was working in New York, and we walked down Fifth Avenue, and there was a couple of policemen on horseback, and they had to clear the crowds as I was walking through. And I remember, fuck, you've come to my city. (laughs) (laughs) And that was when you were in your late 40s? Well, no, I would have been in my 50s. It was when Weakest Link got to America, and there were huge posters everywhere. NBC desperately needed a hit, and we'd created this show. And they'd sent me a fax which said, we've created a new show. Annie looks as if she'd know the answers to the questions and she can relieve the disappointment of the contestants as they leave the podium. And I remember my then husband saying, I'll tell them you're too busy. And I say, which I'd always say to you girls, always take the meeting. And I went and they slightly excited me. It was a very complicated game where the money went down with each round and it was for a holiday, and then there was this voting-off process, and there were 12 contestants. Anyway, we did it in rehearsal room for so long, we got it down to nine contestants. The money went up, and they decided I would say you are the weakest link, and then on that pilot we did, which we didn't even finish, somebody annoyed me enough that I said, you are the weakest link, goodbye. And realising that quiz show contestants are relentlessly ambitious and irredeemably nasty and competitive. And that's how it created the character. Because that could be me. I didn't have to be cheesy. And at no point during your career have you, were you tempted to pick a drink up once you had oh, put it down? Was, no, no I, no, I can't say that ever occurred to me. Really? It's quite no. extraordinary because often I can imagine if the pressure gets to a point, a saturation point. Well, I think the question is, do you want to die? Mm. As far as I know from experience, me and alcohol don't end up working out. Everything good that's happened to me is post me drinking. What do you now use if you're feeling really, really stressed? Shopping, another picture, something else I don't need. And what would you say are your non-negotiables now in like leading a balanced, healthy life each day? What do you like to do? Well, I'm not. I, I have very little patience with anybody or anything that's not going to end up nice for me. I'm quite impatient of nonsense and mm. excuses and a lack of professionalism. The majority of my friendships are very long-standing. And that's really important. I I love a house that everyone can come and feed in. 
You know, there's a big kitchen table that everybody is welcome to. That's important. My dog is very important. Thank you so much, Anne, for joining us on the Hurt Healing Podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you and you are just sort of an inspiration and I hope that one day I will be where you sitting where you are. You are on the road, Pandora. You're an excellent interviewer. Really, really good. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hurt to Healing podcast. I'd love for you to subscribe to the show or to follow me on our Hurt to Healing Instagram at Hurt to Healing Pod. You might also have a friend or family member that you think might benefit from hearing this conversation. So please spread the word. Hurt to Healing has partnered with Brown Advisory to bring you this podcast. Brown Advisory, a global investment management firm, is passionate about raising awareness of mental health challenges in order to help people thrive in an ever-changing world. A big thank you to Brown Advisory for supporting my mission. Mm-hmm.